Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. we got a real cool guest sitting on our couch on a Friday. Today's Friday, right? Today is Friday. On a Friday afternoon. That's, it, loses its, it loses its flavor when i got a break between ask what day it is. Sunday, <laughs> Sunday, Sunday. I mean, Sunday. you can just, you just start Saturday. again. You just start again. Nobody knows. No, that's, <laughs> it's your podcast. Do what you want. It's cheesy. It's cheesy. <laughs> it's all right. That's for all the other podcasts that edit the shit out of their stuff. I don't know. know. What do I know? Mostly fear. Well, hey, everyone, it's Amanda, and it is Friday, and I'm at work on Friday, but at least I'm podcasting kind of work. That feels less like work, more like I'm just sitting around with friends. If we had some drinks, it would... I mean, I have my latte, but... I have water. You have water. Mark's got no drinks. Yeah, fucking nothing over here. You got nothing. Whatever. Whatever. Well, today we have Sam on our couch. And uh, when I was asking him before the mics went on, like, hey, what letters are behind your name? Anyone who's ever been a guest knows I always say, what, how should I introduce you? What letters are behind your name? He's like, I don't know. I'm Sam. I do things. <laughs> Sam, Sam does manual therapy things. He is an osteopathic manual practitioner is, and soon to be school owner. Is that something you do a lot to just downplay what you do and who you are? As an individual? Yeah. How come? Uh, I do that all the time. For myself, it's mostly likely related to the reality that I think what I do, lots of people can do very well. Okay. So I don't necessarily see it as unique. Uh, there's lots of conversations going to be had around that. But for the most part, I think it's like, no, no, this is pretty straightforward. Not that hard. So when someone else is rolling in, these are my credentials. This is what I do. Do you ever sit back and go, you're not that fucking special? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the, uh, I... Now, so this is where it's like, we're talking about this, but then I roll into saying something about myself to downplay something. It's like, there's a little bit of kind of like a, a meta mm. clash here, mm. but more or less, when I got my master's, see, there we go, like talking about my credentials. <laughs> when I got my master's, my it's master's. okay, it's just about the story. <laughs> but it's my fault I brought it up. <laughs> no, 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 you no, did, no. You didn't, you didn't jump in with that. No, so. but the, having a credential mm just means that you have a credential. It doesn't necessarily predict other specific things that everybody should know about you. Mm -hmm. Because let's just say a master's in and of itself or a PhD, they're all unique. Mm -hmm. None of them are exceptionally special. A PhD is unique to the individual. It is not the same as anybody else's PhD. A master's is unique to the individual. It's not the same as anybody else's master's. So just because you have one of those credentials doesn't mean something about you. It means that you have the credential, which basically means that you satisfied some set of criteria that are not always the same. Mm. So knowing that allows me to say, yeah, it's not that big a deal. And if somebody is running their credentials in front of another individual, because I know how it works, I can say, yeah, 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 it's not that big a deal. And uh, do you remember uh, Goodwill Hunting? Yes. Uh, you, you see, that's, that's information you could get from any public library for a couple dollars in late fees. You know, yep, how you yep. like them apples? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is definitely something that I will do. Yeah, I've, I have credentials. And generally speaking, it relates to skills, but... Hmm. No big deal. Why do you do that? Who, Mark? Do you, who do you think? Who do you think wrote that movie? Who do you think wrote the majority of that movie? Between Affleck and Damon? Yeah, <laughs> that's a tough one, man. I feel like it was probably Damon. Yeah. Uh, why? I, why do you think so? 
interviews. Just because Affleck always looks like he's he hates the world. <laughs> yeah, mostly. But also just it, the the quality of interviews, the quality of what seems like off the cuff humor, because okay. it doesn't look necessarily like for interviews they write. Because some people will write for interviews. Yeah. But I think what I've heard from Damon versus what I've heard from Affleck. I think Damon's got a little bit more spark in him. Hmm. Interesting. I want to know why you do that. Why do I do what? Why you downplay what you I do. I don't downplay. You, you said I do that as well when you asked oh. Sam why he does that. Why you downplay like your own credentials or what you do. For the same reasons. We're all just regular fucking people. Yep. And uh, no one is special. And anyone that rolls around feeling that they're special, I don't think you are. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that we're having this conversation right now because before Sam came in, I was on the phone with our other buddy Scott, as yep. I told you, Mr. Dartnell, and uh, he, he, his Happy family, 60, dude. his family has a road yep. that I've yes. driven on quite a yes. bit. Yeah. Uh, but so, all, and Captain also, Hamilton, Captain Hamilton. On with respect to his birthday, somebody told me about his birthday last week, and yeah. I was right in front of him when they told me. Yeah. I said, "Happy, happy early birthday." Make sure you keep having more. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean? What are you saying about me? Well, <laughs> Sorry. he was, he actually brought this up to me in conversation. We were talking about a whole bunch of different people that we all know. I'm not going to name drop here, but we were talking about different people. Okay. And he said. Like in the manual therapy world? In the manual therapy world. Okay. Him and I were discussing things. Educators? Educators. And he said, <laughs> he said to me, your husband has got to be one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. He's like, but he doesn't act that way. I laughed hysterically because I'm like, you're basically saying he acts like a dummy. But he said, he goes, no. I know he, my role. He said, you know, I I appreciate that he's so humble and modest, but he's one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. And he doesn't have this air of, I'm above you. I know more than you. You know, everybody's sort of just colleagues to him. And I said, because everybody is colleagues to him. Mm -hmm. He doesn't think he knows more than any of us. I tell him all the time, you're one of the smartest people I know. And he says, what do I know? I'm pretty dumb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a really quick red flag for me yeah. in most circumstances is when you're speaking to somebody and they present you with a high degree of certainty. Mm. So another way to say it is when yes. somebody's really sure of themselves, they're sure that they're correct. My concern is how are you so sure? Especially if I know a little bit about the thing that they're sure about, right. I know that they shouldn't be. Right Now, because I've been able to learn that for myself over time, basically by screwing up, yeah. I start off with, I'm probably going in the right direction, but it's very likely that I'm wrong at about at least something I'm doing right now. Mm. So because I know that, because it's actually a central finding of my research, I was like, oh, if you don't, if you make a mistake and you don't know you make it, you'll make it again. Right. So it's really easy to not know you're making a mistake because you can't observe all of it. Or as I'd love to say, you don't know what you don't this know. This is a much more intelligent way of uh, thinking about it because I think of it like this. We all shit. The same. <laughs> it depends on what you eat. <laughs> can we not get too scientific about the shit, please? No, no, no. I, I was just going to say, like, I can, when I'm eating really, really spicy stuff, it doesn't bother my mouth. I'm fine. It's several hours later. Whether you're the, whether you're the, the richest dude in the room. Oh, yes. Or the smartest dude in the room. Guess what? We all shit the same. Yeah. Until you're obstipated. <laughs> obstipated. <laughs> Which means you can't pass gas or fecal matter. This took a turn. Let's uh, let's, let's do a <laughs> yeah, proper intro. Let's actually introduce our guest. And now I actually... Uh, 
am interested to see how you're going to do this introduction <laughs> because you know I'm going to ask you to talk about yourself yep. and it's it can sound braggadocious when people talk about themselves. Easy there, Dane. Cook. Braggadocious. <laughs> so <laughs> tell us who you are, Somewhat how long you've been in this manual therapy world. Are we really talking about shit again? Of the coats. <laughs> Somewhat shit on the coats. Is that, hey, 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 buddy, is that a shit on the floor? Oh my god, that's a shit on the floor. You can never wash. You can never cook with that hand again. To everyone listening, I don't know why I thought getting these two together on a Friday evening was a good idea, You're but uh, so, I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's schedu- minimal scheduling options. The, t- the talk turns to poop quickly. Anyway, and the best part of this is Sam's daughter is just outside of this room listening to this whole shit talk. Not listening at all. Yeah, I know. Oh, she doesn't care about us. <laughs> I walked by. I'm like, you got dragged here. Like, yeah, I got dragged <laughs> That's how it goes. She's she's used to it. <laughs> so let's yeah introduce yourself to us a little bit about your history and getting into the manual therapy world and why you decided to go this direction. And then we're going to get into talking about the fact that you're opening a school. Yes, which is really cool. Well, I think so. So uh, my name is Sam Jarman. Uh, I started off in the healthcare space as a kinesiologist. I went to York University and I got when a were bachelor. You when was that York? Yeah. Uh, 2000. So I started in 2000. When were you there? Uh, I Before started that. in 94. 94? Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. no, our, I, I was long gone. Yeah. I doubt our paths crossed yeah. in that sense. Yeah. But yeah. I was there for, I started in 2000, but I was part time most of the way. My, my oldest sister has five kids, and I wanted to be able to help her so that she could go and work because she wanted to still work. So yeah. I made sure I had at least one day off every every semester right. so I could wow, watch my Wow, you just made like all the brothers in the world, like y'all you, you need to step up your game. <laughs> there is no way in hell my brother would have put his education on hold to you help me five with kids. five kids. Even if I did. You at, at, even at, if at I did. it was for one kid. Then it was for See? two. Then See it was that? for three. So in my early 20s, I was... With my two oldest nephews and my oldest niece. That's really cool. Yeah. Are you really close with all of them now? No, not now. Like I, I like I still am close. Like we're family, but yeah. they. I live in Burlington. They live in Brooklyn. Mm. Uh, but the okay. Whitby, Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got you. I got you because you pointed. I guess nobody yeah. else could see that. You pointed west and then you pointed east. I got yeah. it. Right. So I, I don't see them as much anymore. Uh, so it's not that I'm not close with them. It's just the level of contact. Right. So the primary level of contact is sending memes. <laughs> and one of them actually plays for, it's Toronto Metropolitan University now. So yes. right. good old Rye High. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he Rye is on, High. yeah, Rye High, man. He's on the uh, baseball team. So right on. as another tangent, as I'm known to do, but yeah, so 2000 to 2008, uh, undergrad in kinesiology at York University, I got a bachelor of arts because that's a thing. I did that too. Nice. In kinesiology. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just it, the the core content is exactly the same. However, yeah. the all the... So electives. you didn't have to take an organic chemistry. <laughs> yeah. Cares. Well, I may, maybe I should have, but whatever. <laughs> it's not going to... I should not, not have. <laughs> it's not going to help me when treating patients. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and if it does, I'm doing the wrong thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm breaking some rules. <laughs> but I, in 2008, I started working in a multidisciplinary clinic as a kinesiologist. Uh, I was there essentially from 08 to 11. I recognized that I could help people to a degree with exercise, Mm. but no farther. So I saw that I was running into a wall with my ability to help them. I accidentally stumbled in to some conversations where people talked about osteopathy, Mm -hmm. found a school, uh, went, started that school in 2011. So 
the manner in which it worked, kinesiologists can use their hands. It is as allowable. As, as long as you have the training, yeah. Right? The, so I was able to parlay my, train, my early training into actual hands-on work. So nice. there's a way in which you can say I've been hands-on because of my education and my previous background since 11. Are, like, you, are, you, uh, are you a member of the College of Kinesiologists? No. No? No, no. I, I am old enough that it was just coming in yeah, yeah. when I was getting out. We right. graduated around the same time. So I actually have a quick kin question because yeah. I graduated I one year before that. you. That was great. Yeah. 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 And so I graduated in 07. Mm-hmm. And then from leaving uh, leaving Western, I went back into personal training because that's mm-hmm. all I really knew. And yep. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my kinesiology degree. I have blamed the school, but really it's my fault that I didn't really understand. Which school? Western. Oh, you blame it's, Western. It's, it's, I, I said I have blamed because gotcha. anyone who has listened to us for a long time knows I've definitely pointed fingers at the school where I felt like I didn't receive enough like information about what maybe my prospects were. And, but I Specific didn't, guidance? I didn't take the initiative either. So it's really yeah. my fault. Uh, well, we can also blame like the Ontario Kinesiology Association. Which... There's, there's probably a whole bunch of factors, but the point is when I finished in 07, there, well, I didn't understand where and how I fit as a kinesiologist. And that's why I went back into personal training. I couldn't figure out like, like, what do I do with this now? How do I use the knowledge I have? And I was really, uh, I also did an arts degree, but Mm -hmm. I took every single biomechanics course that existed. And so I always thought like, I'm going to do something with movement Mm -hmm. or assessment, but what am I going to do with it? And then I just went back into training. So how did you, when you uh, started working in a multidisciplinary clinic, how did they treat you as a kinesiologist? Because people who did go into Mm -hmm. working in clinics, the ones that I kept in touch with, we're all being treated as physio assistants. They yeah. got zero respect, and and they weren't getting paid well. If you were yes. in, if you were in uh, your undergrad and you saw this post from uh, the Canadian Kinesiology Alliance, and it says, "What does a kinesiologist do?" They just posted this a day ago. What does a kinesiologist do? If you saw one of these infographics, would it have changed? Would would it have just changed your life? Maybe. Really? Maybe. Clinical rehabilitation, health promotion, ergonomics, health and safety, disability management. And no, case it wouldn't have changed anything. I already and administration. I already kind of knew no? these headings, but yeah. it was more so like I didn't, I didn't know where to go. But it, it was really on me. I was an adult. I could have seeked out some help i could have went to the kin department like yes, you know it, it is your fault give me information and Your, i didn't it, it, it also western's kin program sucked compared to yours 100 percent, 100 percent. like i loved western i don't regret it but definitely as one of the better kinesiology when i look at the, the shit that he did which in turn what you did versus myself i was like oh yeah maybe i did make the wrong choice for so, kin programs <laughs> i think an easy way to interact with that experience is to say that university programs are built to be university programs. 100%. They're not job training. No. They're, it's exceptionally rare that at the undergraduate level, you're getting a legitimate skill set mm-hmm. that would translate into work. Yes. Uh, as a really rough framework, an undergraduate degree suggests that you are a good consumer of information. Mm-hmm. A mm-hmm. master's degree suggests that you have the skill set to generate knowledge. Yep. So you can actually do it. Right, because you've proven it. If 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 you've done an experiment, if you haven't done an experiment, if you've done coursework, it's not the same. A PhD means you are a knowledge producer, right? So, a knowledge producer is a commodity. A knowledge consumer is not a commodity. 
Right. So a, a, a kinesiology undergraduate, depending on the specific school that you went to and the specific faculty that you interacted with, you will have accidentally stumbled across some things that you can do. York as a specific program has streams. It has the yes. athletic, I know. I like athletic therapy, athletic therapy. Yeah. The, mar- the sports uh, marketing. Yes. Uh, and then the other one was, uh, oh Lord. That was a sports administration. They have athletic yeah. therapy, uh, sports administration. Mm-hmm. They, have, they have a fitness stream. That's because of Gledhill. Yeah, Gledhill's awesome. Everyone hated him. I liked No, him. no, okay, hold him. on. I liked the man. Hold on. Gledhill yes. specifically yes. states to first-year students, half of you will be gone. Yes. We, I don't like we, you. We got that lecture yes. when we started. Like, I don't like you. Uh, but after that, apparently everybody who interacts with him, subsequent to first year, yes. he's fine. He's great. Which is yep. which is fine. So it's really easy for everybody to hate on him because first year, he says he hates you. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, and he's not lying. Yeah. He's like, what? it's just, he's waiting for the filter to happen. He's, an, he's an intimidating dude, too. He's like this big, tall guy. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's, a, he's a... I mean, by the, by the time you were around him, like he... He wasn't going to do much. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he is not a small man. No. And then everybody loved Malzeki. Yeah. Uh, did you know he passed not that long ago? Well, probably about two or three years ago. Really? Yeah, Malzeki passed away, unfortunately. Huh. He, he and I York had a connection because people. of Detroit. <laughs> so I, I, I need to know then. Like, okay. When was, you got out. He was out great. He was great. In he used to come watch my band uh, when I used to jam at. In, in, Your in, uh, professor would come watch Greg your Malzucky. band. Yeah, I love because that. he used to he used to run a lab at the in the the, the classrooms in Stong. Yep. And uh, we used to jam at the Orange Snail, which is uh, the pub, Calumet, which is the oh no, the Orange Snail was in Stong. Stong. Yeah, yeah, my bad, my which bad. Is the, the the pub. Anyway, so yeah, whenever yeah. there'd be jam rights, he'd come in. But yeah, like when you graduate in 2008, you get a job mm-hmm. at a clinic. Like what was your experience? Was it similar to what people were telling me? Yes. Or yes? It's, it's the assigned care model. Okay. So the physio is required to assess, assigned care, specifically with respect to exercise, and then you follow that. For the most part, it was a really loose framework. It's like uh, strength and rotator cuff. Okay. So you had a little bit of freedom, but not really. Uh, <laughs> realistically, you had a lot of freedom. I would imagine anything that you're suggesting as well, anything that you're finding and seeing, and you're suggesting, hey, physio, like this is what I'm seeing. If, if, if a physio would go to, to Sam and say, strength and rotator cuff, that means I trust you enough to go do what you yep. got to do. Yeah. And therefore, yeah. anything that you're seeing that you want to add on to, go for it. Yeah. And anything that you're seeing that you think I missed, please tell me about it. Was there any assessment on your part? Uh, no, not as a kid. You weren't in a position to do it because it was before regulation. You know, I only really asked that because I just finished editing your article, which is going to be published very soon in about our next magazine about assessment. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's from subsequent skill sets. Uh, I did end up doing a course with a company that's not around anymore. I don't remember their name, but they did a lot of kin uh, continuing ed mm-hmm. and they did some assessment courses. So it's been an interest of mine for a long time. But as far as working as a kinesiologist prior to regulation what you were looking at is the phys- you had to rely on the physios assessment you basically had to follow the the concept that they were putting forth mm-hmm. now that said it's a it's an assigned care model technically the physio is supposed to be able to see the exercises that are being had being done right. however it is very rare that in a physical setup in a clinic that's not going to happen exactly. so uh, there's a degree to which you ended up with freedom uh, and yes there could be 
communication back and forth. It would entirely depend on the particular physio that you were interacting with mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, and this is prior to regulation. So This is how we didn't get grandfathered or how I didn't get Even grandfathered. Even post-regulation is yeah. still like that. Yeah. 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 The, and what you tend to see in any hands-on profession in Ontario is you're going to get people who are working as kins who are just freshly graduated that will go into a hands-on profession because I, I would argue that it's likely still exactly the same with respect to I don't know what to do and nobody told me. Mm. Mm. Even though they're they would be required by the Ontario Kinesiology uh what well, the, the College of Kinesiologists uh to provide some of that information within these programs, but the professors are interested in their labs. Mm. Which they should be because they don't get paid by the College of Kinesiologists. They get paid uh by NSERC for whatever research they're doing and whatever animal they happen to be doing it on. Well, thank you. That yeah. cleared that up. So <laughs> that gets us to 2008. <laughs> yes. Or to, well, to kind of 2011. So 2011, I end up in osteopathy. How many different programs, osteo programs, did you consider and why did you choose the one you chose? Uh, realistically, it was only one for me to consider okay. because of the entry requirements at the time. Okay. Uh, so the schools that had... A respectable reputation at the time. One of them, you had to be a currently practicing hands-on practitioner. And the other one, you did not. Okay. So they were, at the time, accepting people with kinesiology backgrounds. Uh, They would accept high school students at the time. They would provide them with specified coursework prior to entering the actual hands-on program. Mm -hmm. So they would make sure that they did that at the time. I believe a lot, some of that's changed. I'm not 100% sure on the details, but the other program wasn't one that was going to let me in with ease. I heard about some kids who went in, but they basically had to beg and bow and, right. and whatnot. Gotcha. Uh, I think the primary concern, from my understanding, was carrying personal liability insurance for hands-on work, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the other school makes the claim that they carry a a policy, a school policy for the hands-on practice, uh, which I, to be fair, I don't even know that they need to, but they do. So it was one program, um, and that's the one I did. Uh, Four-year program, subsequently, directly subsequent to graduation, I taught for two and a half years Mm -hmm. with the program, and then I just shifted over into private practice, primarily on account of some disagreements, uh, mostly on the manner in the best way to say it is executive disagreements, just some disagreements. I think the, the quality of the information presented is absolutely fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there were some disagreements is Mm -hmm. the easiest way to say it. So I moved into private practice as a result of very, very specific things. I was then motivated to start my master's in 2019 in health science education. At McMaster? Yeah, at McMaster, yeah. So the specific program, the HSCD program, is aimed at people within healthcare practices that want to be part of the educational process. Mm -hmm. Uh, So usually you're going to see nurses, you're going to see respiratory therapists, you're going to see radiation techs uh, because they have to teach. You're going to see a lot of physicians, right? It's aimed at those people to help them resume build. For myself, it... I was motivated because I thought that what I was going to be able to do is parlay it to a research career where I could provide all the information to osteopathic pr- professionals to say, this is the best way to educate people. What I ended up coming across is that my personality doesn't necessarily match that environment well. Not my ability to develop the skills that would be required for a master's or a PhD. I proved I can get a master's. I know that 
on the technical side, I can get a PhD. But the general environment, uh, the peer review process, right. the ethics approval process, I think ethics is exceptionally important. I just don't like the way it actually functions. My When I did my experiment, my ethics package got returned. So I got what was called a conditional... Uh, yeah, like it was, it was basically like a conditional approval. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I got this really weird letter back that my department didn't necessarily know exactly what to do with because they didn't know what they were complaining about. So my, my ethics were fine. What they didn't like was my header. My header had my name and my thesis supervisor's name, but it didn't have all, the rest of my committee's names. Mm. They also didn't like my title page. So I had to redo my title page and my header. <laughs> Easy enough. And then there was something else that they were complaining about, but realistically, they just didn't read. So I said, refer to section 4.2.1, and it was fine. So that process doesn't suit my personality well. I've also submitted uh, papers to journals that they rejected on what I would call political grounds. And I don't like that sensation. Mm. So I'm like, ah, yeah, I can do this technically, but I'm probably, this is probably not the environment for me to pursue that. Hoops and red tape are not your friends. You, well, it depends on the hoops. Mm. You know, if... Uh, hula. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe. I like, I, I can't keep the hula hoop going the same way I used to, and it hurts now. Um, but that's whatever. I, I still sprint, though. I'm trying to picture a young Sam gyrating his hips <laughs> to keep the hula going. Why are you doing that? <laughs> I was, I was, I'm in the conversation. I was much better with it on the ankle. Ah, there you go. Oh, the ankle was better. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the ankle hulas. So all that, yeah, I have uh, essentially a background, uh, an official background in kinesiology, osteopathy, as well as actual research, right? So now all that said, going back to where we started because I don't necessarily see myself as an exceptional person and I know that I was able to do it. Also, when you look around yourself when you're going through these things and you see the people around you who are able to pass uh, at the appropriate level of competency Mm -hmm. and you have your view of self and your view of them, you can say, oh, lots of people can do this. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's a, a reasonable way to say it. It's like, as opposed to, Listen, look at all these flaming losers. <laughs> they have the same title as me. God damn it. Because <laughs> I don't necessarily think that, but every once in a while, I'm sure we all run into that. <laughs> I know. I probably know. I can probably rhyme off a bunch of RMTs that feel that way. About other RMTs. About other So RMTs, you would yeah. name the people who feel ab- that others are flaming losers. Yes, you wouldn't yes. name the flaming losers. No, no. Because I, I, don't, I don't see other RMTs as flaming losers, but I know, no. I know the RMTs that do. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Flaming losers. Well, I mean, you're as far as I can tell, you're a longtime educator, and you would have seen people that other people would have said negative things about, and you're like, no, they're fine. They can literally do it. Yeah. Like it's right here. Absolutely. And you've also undertaken the process of making sure that they can do it, so you can see people of varying presentations to start, and you're like, no, no, I can get them to do it. Watch. Mm. (laughs) So it's that's that's a an interesting thing to to kind of look at, but. You know, all of that just leads me into that position whereby I have a, a set of skills that I think lends well to not only the practice of my profession, but also the educational process. Um, also, just as a small tangent, before we move away from Flaming Losers, <laughs> we can I have, stay on it if you want. <laughs> I have a, I, for those who end up paying attention to me for any length of time, so I do have a lot of material available on the internet. Uh, I will consistently claim that osteopathic practitioners tend to do good work, but the explanations for their work mm. is nuts. Mm. 
Like, it's absolutely nuts. Why did you make that face when you said nuts? Well, because it's it's batshit crazy. <laughs> you have to emphasize give, give, how give, nuts give it me, is. Give me an example of batshit crazy. So I have had the experience of watching somebody do what's called lateralization. Okay. So within the, the term visceral osteopathy, you'll have the patient sitting down. Okay. The practitioner will be standing behind them. They will not be touching them. Okay. They will have a hand just above the head and in the area of the sacrum. Yep. And they will do what's called lateralization. Lateralization is when they are pulled to one side of the patient. So that's the side of the visceral dysfunction. Okay. Do you remember The Princess Bride? Yes. Father, guide my sword. <laughs> okay? And like, I'm not, this is not a joke. Yeah. You know people that you can ask about lateralization. Okay? So they do lateralization. They then lay the patient down. So it's clearly on the left side. And I've seen this. Uh, the patient's laying down. The person says they put their hands over the abdomen. Right? No touch. Uh, I, th- I believe there is eventually some palpation of the abdomen. They say it's the sphincter of Odie is out of phase. Mm. I'm like, oh, you can you can identify that from the outside, and you know how it's functioning from the outside. So your father guided your sword. This is a good example, by the way. This is then a great what they example. did, uh, you you know about Tapotment. They put one hand apparently on the sphincter of Odie. Right. If you know anything about anatomy, well, you have skin, you have subcutaneous fat, you have the greater omentum, you have multiple layers of the large intestine in front of the small intestine or the middle of the duodenum uh, and Listen the sphincter Sam, of Odie. They're on the sphincter, okay? Yeah, uh, <laughs> but if you know anything about smooth muscles in the area, everything's a sphincter. It's a goddamn contraction. It's not a special thing. <laughs> but he, the the person puts one set of fingers on the abdomen, taps. It's reset. That's magic. I mean, it seems like it. Now, that does not mean, and I will, I will be consistent with this, that does not mean that something positive did not happen for the patient. Right. The explanation is nuts. <laughs> that, that is nuts. You, you, okay. you won the day on that. <laughs> I, I have personally had somebody palpate lateral to my xiphoid process under my common costal cartilage and tell me after they poked me in a way that was very uncomfortable, mm. that they were treating my cardiac ligament. Now, maybe you want to talk about the ligament of trites. Maybe you want to talk about the cardiophrenic ligament. But if you just poke me under my ribs and tell me that you're doing something to the soft tissue that holds my heart to my diaphragm, I might have a hard time with it. Now, I can't prove that you didn't, but you can't prove that you did. But you definitely poked me in the abdomen, and I didn't say ouch, but I wanted to. When we were, when Amanda and I were um, hosting a panel discussion for the Massage Therapy Association of Manitoba's conference. Was that their uh, AGM? AGM. Was that this year? Yes. This is what I asked on the panel in a rapid fire. Educator or clinician? For myself? Both. He got really mad at these panelists that wouldn't pick one. You're just you're pissing them off, Sam. That's pick okay. one. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Or like, which is my stronger skill set? What do you consider? Okay, yourself? let's let's start. Which yeah. which which one? Which is your stronger skill set? Which do you prefer? Which uh, I would say that both are strong. My preference is educator, and why the the basic rationale is that there's a cap on how how much I can make my skill set useful in the way that it should be okay. when I'm working as a clinician. I can mm. only see so many people. There is a time limit. There is a cap on that. Yeah. And that cap can be determined by how I'm feeling at a given time. That cap can be determined by other responsibilities that I have. That cap can be ter- determined by how well I can think through a day. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas if I educate others to be able to utilize that skill set in a meaningful way, then that cap for my skill set 
can grow. I like that answer. I never Very thought of you like that. Yep. It's the way that I've been thinking of it for a long time. It's one of the reasons that I taught right upon graduation. This dude is opening a school. He wants to touch all the all of the brains. All okay. of them. I, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> well, Where are you going I, with this? If I hold my hand right here and I tap, I, I might be able to touch your brain. <laughs> That's another one I got pissed off at. Uh, have you heard of the cranial technique CV4 or crani- uh, compression of the fourth ventricle? I don't know anything about cranial. Okay. Fantastic. You're going to love this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's videos. You can. I was pissed off because I was trying to look something up because I'm trying to set up an like experiment. Like pissed off, like genuinely pissed off? Oh, yeah. I think it's nuts. Yeah? Okay. It's fucking nuts, right? Because the- Like the pissed ter- off angry or pissed off ha ha ha? I wish they would stop, but mm. they don't know that what they're saying and what they're doing don't match appropriately. Okay. So they're- the people that are involved in a lot of these subdomains of osteopathy mm-hmm. are not aware that what they're saying is nuts. Hmm. They think they would argue that I am not sophisticated enough to understand it. Okay, so you I mean, have, you did start off talking about poop. Anyway, carry on. That's fine. I'm I'm a complete person. <laughs> <laughs> I am multifaceted. I am sophisticated. Damn it! Sometimes I am also unsophisticated. Often. <laughs> there we go. So, the fourth ventricle, uh, lower in the brain. Okay. There is a claim that what you can do is you can basically hold the occiput to compress the fourth ventricle to essentially stop or temporarily pause the flow of cerebrospinous fluid so that you reset the primary respiratory mechanism. The primary respiratory mechanism, it has nothing to do with thoracic respiration. It is the tide that washes over all cells for all cellular processes to occur. It is not cellular respiration. It is not cellular metabolism. It is the tide. It's based on fluid. And it occurs at a frequency of between, I believe, what you usually see reported is 8 and 13 times a second. And that has nothing to do with thoracic respiration, which happens between 5 and 14 or 5 and 12, depending on where you look, times a second. They're not the same. So I can stop this flow for a moment to generate a vortex to reset the primary respiratory mechanism, this tide that washes over all cells. Now, when I do it, I need to be palpating the occiput, and I shouldn't have my thumbs or my hands in any way on the mastoid processes because I don't want to squish the temporal bones against the occiput. Then when you watch where their hands are, their thumbs are on the goddamn mastoid. (laughs) And it basically looks like bumping. It's just somebody's in supine and you're doing this. And somehow with the movement of the bone, like the movement of the occiput against the sphenoid, because, you know, in adults, that happens. (laughs) I wish you could all see his face right now. It just adds to the whole story. But you can do this. You can stop that flow. And I'm like, first of all, it's a low pressure system. The cerebrospinous fluid is a low pressure system. If you actually read people who specialize in cerebrospinous fluid, they don't even agree on how it gets its pulsation. Some of it's just uh, basically one of the most convincing ones is the arterial pressure in the head because it's an enclosed box generates some form of pressure, which ends up basically being a wave throughout the brain because the arteries go through multiple places in the brain. Uh, There is some degree where respiration is going to do some stuff. They can't agree on the mechanism of pulsation of cerebrospinous fluid, and somebody's going to tell me that they can hold a bone, one bone, but when they when you watch them, they're holding two. So it you know now again that said, the patient may have a very positive outcome 
the explanation is nuts. If the patient has a positive outcome, does it matter that the explanation is nuts? For the ability for somebody to teach another person to end up having that positive outcome, you can argue no. For the communication with the patient, you can argue it's a real problem. Because if you hear somebody say something along the lines of the heart or the liver should move in a particular axis, they palpate the sternum then they t- or the, the abdomen, and they tell you that the liver or the heart are not moving in their appropriate axis, and then they treat it. And then somebody goes to the cardiologist and says, my osteopathic practitioner said that my heart is off axis. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen? Mm. What's that cardiologist going to do? Cardiologists are going to think osteopathic practitioners are nuts. Also, the patient could think, I have a real problem. My heart is off its axis, Hmm. right? I need a medical professional to deal with this. Medical professionals can't deal with it. They can't do anything about a heart off its axis. I need an osteopathic practitioner. If it creates that dependence. But it's not malicious. They don't know that they're wrong. They have been taught with specific details that makes them believe that that's an accurate representation of reality. Therefore, they're not doing it maliciously. They're not doing it to create the dependence. It can occur that way, but it's not on purpose. And that information is gained in formal education? Yeah. So the formal education that they receive tells them that the heart's off axis. And that they can, by, by moving their hand over the sternum, they can tell where the heart is. Does the continuing education feed into that absolutely this is this is one of the reasons why i appreciate you guys for giving me the opportunity to speak to a larger audience than i often get to speak to uh when we did the webinar and i basically said the sacrum is not a big deal right uh, oh yeah that title pissed off some people right away which is, right because which is what i was going to know you're telling them things that they you know their entire career has been based on the yep. idea that the sacrum is a huge deal absolutely and then your title the sacrum is not a, like we had somebody immediately message us and say i already hate this title yep. or something like that we're like yeah we knew you would and my response was doesn't that make you want to watch this even more yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and the thing that i found quite interesting was that i i put forth my case uh the from the feedback that I was getting prior, there was sort of this prediction that I would have a lot of people asking me a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. There was one person who asked two questions and one person made a comment in line with what was being said. And that was it. And then the feedback that I got from the people who were here was, wow, they really didn't know what to do with you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right now that seems consistent for myself across my lifespan. It's just kind of me. Uh, But the opportunity to speak to the community that I'm a part of and say, you're doing good work, but what you're saying doesn't match what you're doing. Do you get a lot of blowback from, from colleagues? When Pretty you much that? nobody talks to me. <laughs> oh. So they, I was... They put baby in the corner. Oh, I'm, t- I'm in so many corners. Unbelievable. It's, it's, it's almost like I'm in the multiverse. So when, when we're going to talk about your school, but mm-hmm. are you expecting these, these people that put you in the corner to badmouth the crap out of your school? Uh, not that I'll ever hear. Oh, that's true. <laughs> so is it the, an expectation of yours, or you, or you think higher of your colleagues in that? Do I? So, if I can reframe the question, is is there an expectation that people will talk some trash? Yes, absolutely. Will will now will me saying this in a place where they might hear it make it more likely that they'll make sure I hear it? Maybe. Hmm. Uh, but I have experience with those that would. 
that I am aware would say things. Mm-hmm. Now, this is broad. I've had conversations with international people mm-hmm. where I'm disagreeing with them, but it just doesn't go particularly far. And people don't go looking for me to to undercut my concepts. After I did the webinar with through you guys, mm-hmm. I was speaking to a colleague and I, I told them the general, the general arc of the story. And he said, listen, I don't really want to pump you up, but you're very thorough, so I'm not surprised. So like I'm not surprised there was no, there, was a, yeah. there wasn't a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah. Right now, it doesn't mean that me being thorough is why there wasn't. It could just be because I'm compared to others so non-standard in my explanation that there is no quick formulation of question. That's that would be more the route I was going. I'm sure. thinking that you're presenting a concept that is either very foreign or completely contradictory mm-hmm. to what somebody has believed, yep. possibly for a 20 year career. Sure. So in that moment, there might not have been any any ability to yeah. to think of something to ask yeah. you but it it got people thinking it generated yeah. probably conversation afterwards they probably went back to their clinics and you know talked about these sorts of things um i like your approach though because in the RMT community, there are definitely people who um, take issue with, you know, the, the way we learn things, the language we use, sure. like all these things you're sure. saying that. Yeah. And again, it's not that RMTs are not doing good work. We are. And, you know, our, our clients and our patients, they freaking love us. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, who doesn't yeah. like a massage? Right. <laughs> so it's not that we're not doing good work, but there there are people who are recognizing that, you know, some of the language is incorrect. The mm-hmm. research doesn't support a lot of the claims that we're yeah. making. And then there's like different groups of people. There's people who get very, very angry and upset that, you know, this misinformation is very dangerous to the public. And, you know, that's why I think Mark was asking you like, well, like, does it upset you or there's people who get really upset about it. They think it's, you know, really halting um, the profession versus it's irresponsible. It's dangerous. It's predatory. Like we've heard all these words. So that kind of stuff. What I would say generally to that is if you look at outcomes, are you aware on some level of reports of, say, legitimate medical harm in relation to massage in Ontario? No, that's literally been my argument for the last five years of us doing this podcast is that not that I don't agree with some of the things sure. that these these people are saying, because... I, I do believe that language does matter. And I do believe that some of the things that we have learned in the way that we've learned it in terms of like what we think we're doing, mm-hmm. how we're affecting the body, yeah. those sorts of things, we know a little better. I'm not so upset that schools haven't quite caught up. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there's certain things that probably they need to, sure. but I'm not so upset about it because again, the, when the therapists come out, they're meant to come out at a very entry level to practice understanding enough to be safe and somewhat effective. And then it's up to them to figure out where they want to go with the career and seek out the additional research, continuing education. And there's tons of people who have. So obviously, like yep. you said, yeah. lots of people can do it. Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have a huge issue with that. But what I liked about your take on it is that you can recognize that even though some of the things that we claim or the explanations of yep. things are batshit crazy, Patient outcomes are highly important. And, you know, again, Mark asked you, like, if the patient outcome is favorable, Mm -hmm. does it matter if the explanation was wrong? And again, like in certain cases, maybe yes, maybe no. But it's I I find it interesting that people would be so quick to like shut down 
contrary mm-hmm. um, evidence because we know enough to know that a lot of the stuff we learned isn't 100% accurate. So yeah. I'm happy to listen to somebody saying to me, the sacrum isn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. Even if I walked in thinking the sacrum's a huge fucking deal. The sacrum yeah. is the most important deal. <laughs> you mean the bone that doesn't move? Hey, listen, <laughs> I think it's important here. Okay. And I would be very happy to listen to what you have to say because, you know, I'm I'm not always right. And yeah. not even I'm not always right. There's a lot of times that I'm very, very wrong because I only know what I've been taught. Mm-hmm. I went to a reputable school. They taught me things. And I'm like, okay, well, this makes sense. You have a PhD and you're telling me this is how it goes. I will take your word for it. And then seven years later, I find out that guy with a PhD maybe was a little incorrect. <laughs> maybe or, he was drunk. Who knows? Uh, no, usually it's they have because they have a lab and they have made findings and they have this high degree of certainty so they communicate that to you because like why would I teach you somebody else's stuff they're my competitors there you go and that's at the university level so yeah there's there's lab fights there's literally like nerd lab fights they wow. happen all the time it's really interesting I was nerd at a conference not that long fights. I was at a conference not that long ago and with through the program that I'm a part that I graduated from for my masters and I was there really early in the morning I was the, I was the first attendee there uh, to the point that the people the administrators with my program I didn't walk up to get my name tag I was talking and they brought me my name tag for the day Right. Then I was sitting at uh, a table, so they had uh, coffee and some snacks. So I sit down at a table, and there's like six, six or seven chairs at the table. But I'm early. I'm right in front of the coffee, so people walk by me, and I'm literally like repellent. <laughs> <laughs> they just literally go. But what I realized is what was actually happening is a lot of them were there as a lab. So they were with their lab right. partners, and they so. But yes, they they will have fights. They don't. They weren't associating with other labs. Got it. Now I I think that's okay because these are young people trying to understand the world of science and research. Like I get it. Uh, hopefully, after that, they will do less of that. But hopefully. I can't guarantee it. But yeah, no. There's definitely those circumstances. Now, just to kind of go back to the concept of the communication. So if an educator communicates to a learner a particular way that the explanation doesn't match reality appropriately, but the learner is able to be very safe and effective and the patient gets a good outcome, I don't think anybody would have a major problem with that. Mm -hmm. The challenge comes when the practitioner who learned that weird explanation communicates it to the patient. Now, there's no malice in it, like I said before, but the patient is relying on the detail of the person with with likely expertise compared to them. Mm-hmm. So again, there's no malice, so it's funky. What I would say is grab better information. Now, I want to be part of that better information, which is why I've combined my skill sets as being a good practitioner and a good educator to open a school. Mm-hmm. Why do you want to be part of that good information? Mark's famous question. Why do you care? That's okay. So why, why do you care? Yeah, why do you care? Throughout most of my life, I've had a lot of people tell me, "It's like, wow, Sam, you have a lot of useless information." Cliff Clavin. Maybe I've actually had somebody <laughs> say that I was like Cliff Clavin. <laughs> Wait, pause. I'm having a brain fart. Cheers. Thank Cheers. you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. 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 Ha! Cliff Clavin. <laughs> <laughs> it's not because I'm belly, bellied up to a bar all the time. It's because of all of the information that I have. I once said to Mark, did you ever notice that Sam has a lesson for you on almost anything? Like if you tell him you like croissants, he will tell you the history of croissants. <laughs> in in the interactions that we've had, my personality is stable across my life. Okay? My dad was really good at Trivial Pursuit, but part of that might have been because he played the same Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> 
Like, not to speak ill of the dead, but, you know, like, he definitely had a lot of information. So I, I would have gotten that Man, in some way. If I ever had to be, like, play trivia, I want you on my team. Yeah, yeah. I think you literally know something about everything. Yeah, but it doesn't mean I know the right thing. Damn it. I'm, I'm still useful. I'm still useful. <laughs> so anyways, because of that, because of that part of me, people have said, you have a lot of in- useless information. And my answer would often be like, well, I just told it to you, so I used it. <laughs> <laughs> So clearly not useless. I win again. <laughs> so if I have information and I see that people are would benefit mm. from that information, not necessarily saying that what they're doing isn't of high level, right. but it could be better, then it's, it's almost a compulsion. Mm. So maybe to get to the root of it, I don't necessarily know the actual why, but I feel that why. Right? So it's like, I see somebody who is talking about something and they don't, they're doing a good job, but they're missing a piece of information. So they're off the mark. Hmm. I, I want to share the information so that they can be more on the mark. When you share the information because someone's off the mark Mm -hmm. and they don't, they don't find that helpful Mm -hmm. or they they don't reject it it or Mm they're, does that, does that a failed effort on your part? No. No, not not at all. For for me, uh, because people are variable and people will take information on in varying ways, I have done my duty or my compelled duty to share the information with them. They are free to do whatever they want after that. Uh, that I can relate as a superficial concept to my father being from America. He was from Detroit. So my claim is that freedom is very central to me. You are free to do what you want. Right. But if I see something going wrong and I do nothing, then I failed. If I do something and it still goes wrong, mm-hmm. I didn't fail in my duty. It does does this does this need to fulfill duty apply to all parts of your life? No. No, no. At the now with respect to information that I have that other people don't. Yeah. Yes. Okay. But that's not all parts of my life. Right. Right. Um I hopefully that actually does something for that question. Mm, it does. Okay, good. <laughs> the other question I had, because you brought up winning, how important is winning to you? The you attempt to win? The attempt to win is central. The requirement to win at all times is not. Do you like it better when you win? I think most people would. But I, I'm okay with a loss. Like It's not going to kill me because it's happened before. And from that loss, depending on the specific area, I'm going to take something away, right? Now, again, if my effort was at the appropriate level, then I've got no problem, right? Right. Uh, sprinting is what I do, right? I've never been fast. I've never been good at it, but I like it. I used to play a lot of basketball and I did not like my success or failure being predicated on the le- efforts of others. So if I, if I worked really hard and I set you up and you flubbed it every time, then I'm like, okay, well, this is getting in my way. Whereas with sprinting, if somebody beats me, well, they're faster than me. You have to work exceptionally hard to be a horrible sprinter. Right? You can you can spend four hours a day in the gym and suck, but at least it's on your own effort. When you lose, or you haven't won, however you want to say it, how long does it take for the learning to happen? Is it immediate, or, it, do, you, it, or do you have to sit in a loss for a little bit? It would depend on what it was, right? So if it's a... This is actually something that you can find with neurological research, right? So... If the mistake is obvious, Mm -hmm. the learning's right away. If the mistake is not obvious, you may never figure it out. All right. So in healthcare, as an example, uh, say a physician prescribes a medication 
And the time for that medication to have an effect is 24 hours. And that physician isn't on shift, right? It's so far away that they may not know that they used the wrong one because the result, it's like, it's too far away. You know, uh, say with a, with a dog, you know, you come home, the dog pooped on the floor, you put the dog's nose in the poop. It's like, well, I sniff poop all the time. This is awesome. Mm. It doesn't understand what you're saying because the mistake and the, the observation don't line up. Right. So there's definitely times with a loss where you don't know why it happened. Right. So under those circumstances, it's ambiguous. So you just continue to put forth effort. Whereas if it's, I wasn't fast enough, mm. I, I know what to do to attempt to become faster. I'm not guaranteed that I'll become faster, but I know what to do about it. Right. I know that I have to make, or I know I can look back and know the thing that I wasn't doing right. So maybe I was too tense. Maybe I didn't rest enough. Maybe I, you know, I was dehydrated. Something you can, you can trace it back. It's not too, too bad. So it depends on how obvious the mistake was that led to the loss. Or if you don't know why the hell you lost, well, you can't figure it out. Do you beat yourself up when you lose? No. Never. Not re- Well, I mean, not now. When I was young, yeah, young people will do that. Was that is that a is that a conscious decision to to not beat yourself up, or is that just a natural evolution for you? I I would call it more of a natural evolution, which would have come from beating yourself up about something and realizing it literally did nothing. Mm. Right. So I think a reasonable way to describe myself is almost everything I do is on purpose. Right. So I've had people say that, oh, you you're a deep thinker, and I'm like, hmm. I might have been at one point. I don't, in my brain, there's not a lot of words. What did you tell me the last conversation we had? So essentially one of my friends, he he drives with the radio off and people that will drive with him think it's exceptionally weird. And I'm like, no, no, it's noisy. And he's like, how do you know? And I'm like, you think in full paragraphs. He's like, how'd you know that? I'm like, I can tell. Whereas for myself, so what I said to my friend was, when you see me and I make a face and I kind of look up and I go, so, 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 so. he does so, do so. those noises all the time, by the way. That's me thinking. Mm-hmm. That's what it sounds like in my head most of the time. There's definitely times when I'm thinking in sentences, but they're usually broken. I'll start thinking in a sentence and I'll stop and I'll just go off and make some stupid noise in my head. Mm-hmm. But that's the way that it functions for me. So there's a way in which it's it can superficially seem like I constantly in thought but i'm not there's really no latency between my words and my thoughts right right so it happens quick most of that's probably because of stuff about me and how i've developed knowledge i don't develop knowledge by sitting in front of it i develop knowledge by paying attention to something for a short period of time getting distracted and going to look at something else Hmm. right so those things that are separated as far as say categories they're connected in similar time Gotcha. Right. So, you know, uh, the movie Up, it's like, my master is good and great. He made this color so that I may squirrel, mm. stuff like that. That's what I'm like. Right. But because I do that with everything, things tie together for me a lot. So it right. seems like what the, the cognitive psychology term would be my semantic network is strong right? The network of related meaning. So a particular motion may not just mean the motion. It may mean something that I've experienced. It may mean something that somebody talked about. It may mean a particular person. It all ties together and it's really fast, right? It's, I think everybody can do that. I think that the way that people are asked to do stuff is very walled off. You're asked to know about a muscle, right? And then it's like, well, we're going to do functional anatomy now. Right. So say as an example to talk about my school, the way that I've set up the curriculum is purposely to leverage semantic networks. So I'm not going to ask a student to learn about the psoas. I'm going to ask them to learn about 
thoracic flexion, lumbar flexion, hip flexion, uh, things of that nature. But let's just say, maybe a better example, I'm not going to ask them to learn about the abdominal muscles. But when I talk to you or when I give you a module about thoracic flexion, lumbar flexion, or what I would call pelvic flexion, the exact same muscles, the exact same nerves, the exact same blood vessels are all all there because generally thoracic flexion is the abdominal muscles. Generally, lumbar flexion is the abdominal muscles, right? That's what it is. So I'm going to sew it all together and it's, I want it to be redundant. So there's a repetition effect and there's a meaning effect. I have a couple questions before I get to your school. Absolutely. Because you bring up movies a lot. Yeah, man. Favorite genre of movie. Favorite I know this is completely unrelated to anything. That's okay. Uh, Squirrel. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not terribly difficult to entertain. I do have a harder time sitting in front of movies at home now than I ever would before. I switch a lot. I actually watch YouTube way more and it's usually professors and, you know, say scientific topics. That's what I do now. He watches he watches underground lab fights. Just kidding. No. <laughs> no, those suck. <laughs> They're not fun. <laughs> like they don't even tell good jokes. Like, <laughs> fuck. He's an unfunny scientist. <laughs> yeah. No, they really are. <laughs> the, I've I've heard people talk about how much they love comedy as professors and then it's like okay listen man I love comedy and the way you're talking about comedy like this is hacky and pretentious calm mm. down mm. like a comedian that thinks they're funny is very difficult to deal with mm. I, I know some comedians right uh, so now, is comedy your favorite genre then? yeah I would say yes but I do love pointless action I thought he was going to say porn. I got like no, so scared no, no. for a Pointless second. Action. I, don't get I don't I mean, to be, I was like, "Am I learning something new fair, about Sam?" I am an adult male that was born in the eighties. Like, I'm not completely against it. Uh, <laughs> like, goes, I, don't, I don't. I'm like, what? Are you, where's he going with this? No, no. I mean, I didn't go there, but I guess we're well, sorry, guys. I did that. Whatever. So I think we've learned something about you. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, Pointless action, yeah. Like, so, like, like shoot 'em up, a stuff? good shoot 'em up movie. That Mark loves those shoot 'em ups are okay. Shoot 'em ups, gotta have a car, a car, dude. Uh, car chases, <laughs> <laughs> like Bas- ridiculous stunts that would never occur in real life. Oh, yeah. Mark, Mark gets so Absolutely. mad at me when Don't we're watching something like that. Don't fucking and, wreck it for me. But this is all I do, <laughs> Sam. Okay, this is all I do. Some ridiculous thing will happen where somebody will jump dude, off like like a freaking skyscraper, like bounce off of somebody's awning onto a moving train. You know, like that kind of you thing. You mean Jackie Chan, right? Yeah. I will watch this happen, and I just look at him, and I all the I say don't, one word, and he gets so mad me. at me. I look at him, and I go, "Sure." <laughs> Listen, he gets so angry. So the, the thing that you need to understand <laughs> like that. about those stunts is, while they may not happen in continuity, they happened in full. So they did jump. You remember the Mission uh, the Mission Impossible one where Tom Cruise broke yep. his ankle? Yep, yep. Yeah, he broke his ankle and kept running. He literally broke his ankle. So that did happen. Do you know what I mean? Now, that full scene did not happen that way, right? I'm okay. I, I, I accept and understand that. But yeah, like, <laughs> 80s, like 80s and 90s martial arts movies, man, they were terrible and awesome, <laughs> right? Like, I'll, I'll watch those, right? Like, like real action, right? The Expendables is hacky as hell. But I loved it. Like when Chuck Norris comes in as lo- basically Lone Wolf McQuaid, and it's like, who, who'd you have with you? It was just me. <laughs> the guy like points finger guns. Like, come on, man. 
That's good and, stuff. And he's in on the jokes. That's good stuff. It's always good stuff. <laughs> yeah. So so comedy and pointless action. Yes. Yeah. I feel like you two have a lot in common. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's fair. Well, I also do enjoy very much a John Cusack rom com. That's true. <laughs> so okay, listen. Like I said, I'm Ghost easy- Point Blake was be- was probably one of my favorite movies. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm I'm relatively easily entertained when people are like, oh well, this wasn't. Shut up, man. <laughs> like, I paid. I sat down. I didn't leave. It was fine. Right? And then people find all kinds of plot holes. I'm like, whatever, man. I don't care. Plot was, holes? Mm-hmm. Like, when people, like, you know, now that everybody can have an opinion on the internet. Oh, everybody watching, can broadcast their opinions. Yes. We all had opinions before. We just couldn't broadcast. Uh, well, but as I said, everybody can have an opinion on the internet. Yeah. You know, you want to broadcast, you go broadcast. It's film theories and all these things. And you see all these, like, plot holes coming up. I never, there's never a part of me that's like, oh yeah, like it's wrecked or whatever. I'm like, guys, this is a fucking sitcom that has multiple writers. There's going to be like certain, like it's entertainment. Like if you spend all your time looking for plot holes. So you can do that with plot holes, but not stunts. I didn't say I can't do a stunts. I just said, sure. Fair enough. Okay. Well, no, I think you say that now because you realize just how much trouble it gave this poor man. So much trouble. Yeah. I'm sorry. The best are like those 80s, 80s TV shows where something blows up and it's like the stereotypical three three camera angles. Yes. Yeah. Right? <laughs> the explosion yeah. happens three times. And there's and always somebody minutes. diving towards the camera and they just, just get but out of the explosion. What show was not bad about that? The A-Team. They shot lumber out of a tank. <laughs> I have to. I have. I have. I actually have the whole series on DVD. Yeah. I have to go watch it. Oh, I haven't dude. watched it. Like j- just for how they got Mr. T onto planes. <laughs> <laughs> he, he can't fly. He can't fly. He can fly. He just hates it. Yes. And he was an airborne ranger. <laughs> Look at me right now. Look at um, my face. It's fine. <laughs> how How do you go about? Opening a school? No, like for real. So how does this? I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Okay. It's I would unre- never want to do it because I don't care like you. But. It's an unregulated profession. Right. Which means that there is no meaningful framework around what must be done. Right. The There isn't even the opportunity as an unregulated profession to be registered with the government. Uh, as, this I did not know. So you know how all the private colleges are registered with the government? Yes. yes. That is within regulated professions. There's no avenue for somebody to be registered in that fashion with the Ministry of Education in Ontario for an unregulated profession. So essentially, it it really is more of a business as an entity than it is, say, on paper, a school, an educational institution. Have you have you you looked? The answer is yes. Have you (laughs) looked into? what it would take to get it registered with the ministry because then things like government funding becomes a possibility. So there is there is the opportunity to register with OSAP, but that's OSAP's rules. Yeah. Right. So you'd basically, ju- you'd, I think you do that through OSAP. Okay. Right. So you have to like speak directly. Like not through the ministry. I thought, I thought that you would only be able to get OSAP, like have, have your institution or whatever um, be OSAP eligible if it was registered with the ministry. So let's just put it I, this I, way. I'm making this up. I no, that's okay. Idea. Let's just put it this way. Yeah. If you're registered with OSAP, you're registered with the government. Right. But OSAP and the Ministry of Education are not the same thing. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Right? So they're separate entities, yes. so they would each have their own requirements. Right. So my basic understanding is the college, the re- registry of private colleges, you don't have access to unless you're a regulated profession. Okay. Uh, now, that's my understanding, and I could be wrong, but I've, I've looked at it, and there's no pathway. 
So as far as OSAP is concerned, the I believe there's a pathway for that. You'd have you'd probably have to be running for a while. I would guess to start and then there's specific requirements. So they want you to track stats of the employment rates of your grads yep. and the income levels of your grads. Right. Cause one of the things that they want to predict is can your grads pay us can, back? Exactly. Can we yeah. get our money back? Yeah. yeah exactly. Cause if they can't, then like they don't care. Don't get me started on career colleges and how they, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So how the, some of them coach their grads on how to, to talk to, how to talk to somebody when yeah, they're yeah. called. Absolutely. Right. So what I will say is, Part of my personality, loving freedom, mm. I would rather have as little opportunity for people to be beholden to the government for access to the education as possible. Okay. I'd rather have them have an opportunity to have access to the education. So the starting of the school is basically have a curriculum right. and start a business. How long does it take you to develop a curriculum? You did that solo? Yeah, completely. How long did it take you to do? Uh, there's one way in which you could say it was like eight months. Okay. Another way in which you could say I'd been developing material for years. Okay. Right? Because I'd, I'd been doing that. So the earliest YouTube videos you'll see from me that would basically be curricular content would be 2018. Okay. Right? So that's part of it, but the ability to put it together. So the way that I've put it together is the what I call the cognitive subjects. So anatomy, physiology, theory, history, ethics, right. uh, stuff like that. That is asynchronous. So that is provided to the students immediately upon entering to the school so they have everything everything they're required to do they have right away okay uh it is mediated through google forms Mm -hmm. so essentially what happens is you click on a link you go to the google form the google form is going to have a mix of videos and written written resources about the topic or topics Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You will then answer a set of formative questions. Formative questions are there to code learning and help learning, not judge it. You go through that. You tell me that you did it. I give you the quiz. Right? You do the quiz. You've proved that you can pass it. Uh, Essentially, as far as when I was talking about the semantic network surrounding motions, Mm -hmm. there are 44 modules, uh, which are motions. You will do each one of those modules three times. There's a level one quiz, a level two quiz, a level three quiz. Right, so I had to develop all those. So right. that's the thing that kind of took me eight months. When it's taking you eight months, are we talking eight months part-time stuff? Are we talking eight oh, yeah. months of you just locking yourself away? No, no, no. I still have to make money. I have to treat patients right. and take care of my daughter. Gotcha. <laughs> so no, it's not like that. He's it a was, whole human. Remember he told yeah, yeah. me that. That's right. a complete human. <laughs> he shits, I forget. <laughs> and sometimes I don't. <laughs> so it's not a constant stream. It's not cholera. <laughs> I don't, I don't I don't know where to go from here. We're at poop again. So, so the ah uh, yeah, fair enough we are. Now, the, as far as the so that's how the asynchronous stuff goes and yep. then the in person the hands-on uh is essentially four consecutive days a month okay. for 18 months. Uh I am aiming primarily well exclusively at people with previous healthcare backgrounds. Right. Uh who have running healthcare businesses which is why RMTs are the primary market. So RMTs have proven that they can pass government standards to be regulated in Ontario. They've proven that they know anatomy. They've proven that they know physiology. They've proven that regardless of how they're making their money, that on some level they can run a healthcare business. Right? They've proven that maybe they're working in somebody else's clinic who refers for them. They can do that. They can manage it. Or they've proven that they can run their own clinic and have enough business coming through that they can support themselves any exceptions to the acceptance into your school uh as far as the like so are you asking what the the prerequisites are yeah and then if there's any wiggle room on any of those things yeah so there will be on a case-by-case basis if somebody is in essentially something 
very, very close to a long-term healthcare practice. Okay. Right? Maybe it's not a regulated healthcare practice. Mm-hmm. I will at least begin to consider them. Okay. What I want to see is evidence of a basic level of understanding of anatomy and physiology, which most people in things adjacent to healthcare. So I, I think the best way to put it is, let's just say somebody's not hands-on. Say somebody is a kin. Somebody is a nurse. Right. I'm willing to consider them. Right, a nurse may be less so because a nurse isn't running a private business, right? But a kin maybe because if a kin has been out for a while and they've been doing some form of training, something along those lines, then we can talk. Gotcha. What I would also want to see is that they are running a business, right? Because if they're not running a business, they will run into the regular stumbling block of anybody who comes out of a hands-on hands-on college Mm -hmm. that they don't necessarily have the network or the wherewithal to get their business running. I want somebody who has a running business gotcha. because I don't want them to be hamstrung by the difficulties with a network when they come out. So if you're already running your business, I know that you can do it, right? If you have the requisite knowledge to understand what might be going on and what not to do to a patient, then I'm in a decent place. Then I have to ask you some questions. So it's just a general conversation, like an interview process where I would ask you questions like, okay, if I tell you that left rotation of the lumbar column means that the left side of the lumbar column is going backwards. And I'd say that you have to make that motion happen with the patient's right leg. What would you do? Mm. And then they'll give me some form of answer. And then that would let me know, okay, this person has the basic with, with no primer right. capability to answer that question. And then I can give them the details as to how to perform it safely and effectively on the person that would be in front of them. Associations mm-hmm. and uh, membership to associations. Yeah. So Talk to me about that. The associations are essentially the regulators. Well, okay. I think the, the better way to say it is the insurance companies. The access to billing insurance companies with respect to osteopathy in Canada, mm-hmm. that is essentially your regulator. That's your gatekeeper. Right. Yeah. Now, it doesn't have to be your gatekeeper, but people will allow it to be their gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. People in healthcare can run cash businesses. Absolutely. They choose not to most of the time, which is understandable because there's a lower bar to entry when it feels for the patient like the money is not coming out of their pocket right now. Right. Now for osteopathy, it always comes out of your pocket except for very, very few companies. I think uh, Blue Cross and Green Shield will allow direct building, but all other insurance companies in Canada will not allow direct billing for osteopathy. Okay. So the association is what gets your foot in the door as a practitioner to access insurance billing. The ability to be part of an association in osteopathy is going to depend on a few things, some of it being politics, some of it being the school that you come from. Uh, So the relationship that I'm developing and I'm going through what is called the school approval system is with CIMOTA, the Canadian Massage and Manual Osteopathic Therapists Association, which I believe you have have had. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And you've had them on your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. They're the best. Yeah. Yeah, Heather. Yes. Yes. Exceptionally professional. Yes, she is. Exceptionally positive. Yes, she is. And willing to help. Uh-huh. Right, so I'm in that process right now. Nice. Uh, the what they are is a legitimate national association. Mm-hmm. Yep. Other associations within osteopathy will have essentially a relationship with other provinces, or they will set up their their association in multiple provinces, which is a completely legitimate thing to do and functions just fine. It used to be what you were hamstrung by was you were trained in Ontario and you had the opportunity to enter an Ontario association. The other associations have seen that problem and they've rectified it. But the thing for myself as an institution, or not myself as an institution, the institution I'm opening, is that many of these people will be currently practicing massage therapists. Mm -hmm. Now, massage being a profession that has varying levels of regulation across the country. 
what I would like to offer people the opportunity to do is be portable, not only with respect to osteopathy, but also with respect to massage. So if you're somebody who is a massage therapist in Ontario and you have osteopathic training and you want to move to another province, I don't, I think it is more useful in a complete sense to have a relationship with an association that can represent you at the exact same time. Absolutely. And Simoda fits that bill. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Makes a lot sure. of sense. Since we've we've talked about associations and you talked about there being no real framework for an unregulated profession, uh, what are your thoughts on regulation? And was there ever a time with you getting into osteopathy that you either wished it was regulated or do you feel that regulation would be a positive thing? Or are you like, no fucking way, man. We're, <laughs> we're good being unregulated. So I think the the better way for me to approach it is just based on observable reality. Right. Observable reality suggests that no province in the country wants to regulate any more healthcare professions. Mm. My understanding, now I don't know if this is accurate at the level of the government, but this is the le- accurate at the level of report that I've gotten from insight from legal professionals. Okay. The governments would like to dissolve the regulatory colleges. Now, the rationale there is that it's an old model mm. that is not functioning the way that government officials seem to appreciate. The colleges are claimed to protect the public from the practitioner, but they can protect the practitioner from the government. So a good example of this would be CMTO. My understanding is CMTO, if you mess around, they cut you. They're, they, they're strong with discipline to their, to their practitioners. If you look at the College of Physicians and Surgeons, you will see them protecting practitioners from the government. Right. So you, you're in this dicey place. So my understanding is that regulation is not on the horizon for osteopathy. It's really not on the horizon for any other professions. Say for people's sense of self, there could be some value. For the sense of practice, for the ability to practice, uh, there's no real value. Right. What it does is it actually restricts you in a lot of ways. Some people are cool with that. Some people are not. Some people feel it provides them with legitimacy. Some people don't care. Right. Uh, so as far as, say, obligate reality, it's not necessarily a meaningful thing across the board. It could be meaningful to individuals. So I don't think it's on the horizon. I don't necessarily see it having an extreme use case. If it happens, everybody will be able to function within it. If you look at regulated professions as they stand, people are fine within it and they can practice in in highly varied ways. I know that you've spoken to a lot of massage therapists that are within regulated provinces and they're not all the same. They don't all practice the same way. They have some leeway. So essentially what it does is it sets up the barriers that you don't go beyond without getting punished which is completely fine. In the case of osteopathy, because people are looking for access to the insurance companies, well, the insurance companies rely on what's called the WHO document for our benchmarks for training in osteopathy. I have problems with that document, but it does exist. It is a standard. So I will make sure that I hit that standard in the way that I'm required. That said, that's the boundary that I have to play within. Right now, as far as say individual graduates, they can do whatever the heck they, well, okay, they can't do whatever they like but they can make choices that allow them more freedom or less freedom. You brought up legitimacy. I know that one of the um, arguments for regulation a lot of the times is public perception. You know, public perception comes up a lot in discussions of not just regulation, but exactly what we were talking about right at the beginning, you know, language and the way that, you know, if you've got some practitioners saying, I tapped you and you're healed, that, you know, it, it can <laughs> put a bad taste in the public's mouth for the entire profession. Regulation lets that happen. 
regulation lets the I've tapped you in your heel happen. Because if it's the orthodoxy of the profession as it already exists, regulation isn't going to get rid of it. Correct, sir. My question is more about uh, legitimacy and public uh, perception. Do you think there's more osteopathic practitioners that feel like regulation would make them look a little more legitimate and more on the same level as some of the other regulated professions like chiropractors or physios or massage therapists? Or do you think they they don't give a shit and they're happy to be outside of that? I would say as with with anything else, there's a range, right? Mm -hmm. So I can't speak for every osteopathic practitioner. I don't know every one of them. I know some of them. The ones that I know, I think are relatively unfazed by the the desire for regulation. Mm -hmm. That might be because of the specific things that they heard when they were being educated and preference with where they were educated that regulation isn't the way to go. But there are definitely groups of people who talk about wanting it and attempting to get it. So I think as with anything else in any, with respect to any topic, there's a range, Mm -hmm. right? So I wouldn't say there's an overwhelming push one way or the other. So when you were a new kinesiologist in 2008 and realizing that you needed some more training and manual skills, I know you said the reason you went with osteo was meeting with an osteo. Mm -hmm. So I've asked a lot of osteopathic practitioners this question is why did you decide to go that route? Especially like a lot of people who like your your target audience basically people mm-hmm. who are in a regulated profession like RMT where like you know if we're talking insurance and stuff we've we've got it easy right mm-hmm. but why they would want to then go into a more unregulated profession what was it about osteopathy that made you realize like this is the direction i want to go because i mean as especially, a kid you could have done exactly. physio you could especially have done, like, like you could have you, done anything you, you you've got your undergrad you've got your yeah. master it's not like someone that went to massage therapy school they went to a private career college they can't get into any any other program because mm-hmm. they don't have you could have done anything yeah. why why osteopathy so i think for myself there there was some novelty and some unknown Right, so I'd heard positive things about it. I'd obviously had the opportunity to have some discussions. It seemed like something that I could approach. Right, I wasn't necessarily specifically thinking about physio school. It wasn't necessarily something I was interested. In. And part of that was because I saw how multidisciplinary clinics would interface with right. Physios. You've worked with physios, yeah. So it's, it wasn't the physios; it was the way that the clinics saw them. The clinics saw them as signatures. Oh. Okay. Right. Physios give you as a as a clinic access to billing opportunities. So if you can get them to do an assessment and sign off on something. Well, Mark always calls physios the uh, like the is it the gatekeepers or or no doctors are the gatekeepers and the gatekeepers send everyone to physio. Yeah, yep. man. If you got physio on your if you staff, got physio, oh. you've, you've oh, yeah. got gold. You can you can you can so you can make killing. If if a physio ref- so what you what an insurance company may sometimes require is a physio to sign off for orthotics. Right. So you can like the physio has to do the assessment before you can get your orthotics for for the particular plan that you're on. So, yeah, your physios are often treated in a way that it maybe is less respectful and they can make choices. But there are some of them are. So it wasn't necessarily something that was on my radar. So I think it was just the thing that I was aware of at the time. It was the detail I had at the time and I approached it. Uh, I got into the school and I got an education. I just chose to do it. So it wasn't necessarily a master plan or it wasn't something where I was weighing options per se. It was something that I saw as meaningful. It was something that I saw as attainable. 
And I did it. I legitimately don't know this. And, you know, I asked. So, for example, we had your buddy Tara Nicole on the podcast before, and she's RMT and osteo. And so, of course, I asked her, like, the differences in education. And she and a lot of other RMTs who've done osteo as well said it was building onto what I already knew. It was going deeper into the body. There was a little more of a holistic approach. And so, okay, I'm I'm cool with that. Yeah. Um, I don't think Tara was built to be an RMT. I think she might even say that. She might even said that someone, when she was in RMT training, probably told her, like, you're not an RMT. You're maybe the, a the, the impression that I get from the conversations that I have with her, because I do work with her, right, right. Yeah. is essentially that somebody suggested that she was more like an osteopathic exactly, practitioner. Yeah. Right? Yes. So that's the line that you, that I've heard from her yeah. uh, in, in education settings as well. Right. To be honest, she also is not a red tape person, right? Like, Tara very much prefers to practice in the way that she feels best suits her patients. I mean, we all do. But how do you think she is with a hula hoop? I, amazing. <laughs> Tara is, uh, she's a fucking athlete, man. I, if, if somebody can hula, I bet you Tara could hula for three days straight. So yeah, yeah I yeah. mean, Tara, if you're listening, let's let's have a hula hoop competition. Sam will use his ankle. You can use whatever body part you like. No, when I was younger, <laughs> I would use my ankle. I am okay right now. I forget what I was going to ask you. It was about, oh, okay. So the, here's, here's the question that's probably dumb, is that when RMTs who have done both describe osteopathy i i always really get this sense that majority of them really put osteopathy on this totally different level much more on a pedestal like rmt seems kind of basic Mm -hmm. and yet again we are the regulated professions and and osteos not does anybody know why that is i mean it's not like osteopathy is new this is a very old profession why it's not that old uh, 1892 Oh, it's you're you're right. It's not that old. Well, not compared to massage. Would would right. would, would someone who's done it in reverse order then go about it and speak about it in the reverse way? I don't know that you would. F- I'm curious. I don't know that you would find them, but I do know that they exist because I am aware of some of the the private massage colleges that will offer the program, say for kids to become massage therapists, like accelerated programs. Yep. There are osteopathic practitioners in there. So they are osteopathic practitioners that end up going for massage. I know they exist. I haven't spoken to them, but I know they're there. I'm curious if you are somebody who did uh, osteopathy first and RMT second, I am curious because I feel like I get a lot. I just, I get this sense that majority of these practitioners yeah. feel that osteopathy is levels above RMT in education, in the way that they're able to approach their patients, in their assessment techniques, in their pal- and I'm, pal- I'm not, not, okay. not palpation. I am not, okay, I was I stopped myself there because I was, I was about to say, I don't, I don't want to shit on any osteos, like you no. guys are great. I'll do it. But I mean, we have had, we have had students here See, he at Con Ed taking continuing ed courses. We get a lot of osteo students. We get yeah. RMTs and osteos. And sometimes I... Well, you, you get practitioners. Sometimes yeah. I get like big question marks and I scratch my head a little when I watch some of the manual techniques and the palpation skills of the osteos. To be honest <laughs> with you, I'm like, huh. Because again, I always hear that it's, you know, it's like so much more in depth and then I watch them and I'm like, well, I, would, I could do that. I would say that what you're running into in discussion compared to what you're seeing as an educator is culture and claims not necessarily observable reality because you're observing something and you're hearing something and you're you're i think you're pointing to that they don't match the way you think they should is that fair yep i'll say i'll take that okay so basically when you go to something especially something that's a private college and is unregulated you can predict that they have to sell more Mm -hmm. right you can also predict that something that is not necessarily a well-known profession within a given jurisdiction has to sell more 
Okay. Right now, this is not the perfect explanation, but it's it's something that you could lean into a little bit. And, and I know you're and, going somewhere. I'm following and, and you. And look at more. Right <laughs> now, but I'm not making the claim. I'm saying that it's not that hard to predict. But when you go back to what I've suggested, that osteopathic work is solid, osteopathic claims are nuts, that they are speaking to you about their perception of the claims because the claims in massage therapy are not as nuts as in osteopathy. Okay. The hands-on skills, to be fair, are not terribly different. I've watched videos that Mark puts up of stuff that he's demonstrating, and I have no idea where the heck you learned it, but you learn stuff that I do. You learn stuff that I learn specifically, which means that at least on some level within the massage therapy world, the physical methods that are used within the osteopathy world are present, right? I don't know exactly how, but I know that that's the case because I can see it, right? The way that I've seen you describe it. I'm like, nope, this guy's saying the same stuff. You don't go to the crazy stuff. You just say, this is where you're putting your hand. Right, And your hand may have to be different than my hand because our hands are different. But this is the concept. This is the outcome goal. And that's good teaching practice. And I can prove it with research. (laughs) (laughs) That's just, I want to make us both feel good. But, so I think what you're running into is the claim as primary, not necessarily the work as primary. Now, if you have chosen after you started in a particular profession, you practiced for a while to move into another profession, I don't know what would motivate you to say that the second profession is not on par or above, right? So that may right. just be personal. It may be. And like I said, this is just an observation. And oh, it, yeah. it made me always question, like, why why isn't osteopathy regulated? But now that you're saying, you know, 1892, okay, you're right. I'll go with you. It's not that old. I actually didn't realize that it's only been around that long. But if you I thought listen, it was much older. If you listen to the... <laughs> why am I British now? I don't know. Well, it, make, <laughs> it just makes sense. For a Negroni. <laughs> an itty bitty Negroni. Yes, that's for Monica. <laughs> yes, that's, that's, in, that's inside. It's, it's, yeah. Anyways, the... Uh, if you listen to Dr. Still, who was the gentleman who claimed he was the discoverer of osteopathy, he, he has a quote, and I like the quote, uh, but it doesn't mean that everything else he wrote is something that everybody should rely on and people can talk about that. But basically, it's like the quote is, if you ask me how old osteopathy is, I will tell you it is as old as the universe. I discovered it in Kansas. <laughs> so he's talking about essentially universal principles in his description, but where he was when it happened, mm. right? So is you know he's well informed by other practices. It can be identified, but not necessarily written down. But he was he was a man of his time. There was other stuff happening. He saw stuff. He learned stuff. But as far as how he put it together, now the thing that I will say as far as assessment is concerned, the momentum of massage therapy from the patient's standpoint is you show up, you tell them where it hurts, and you expect them to rub it. That is not the skill set of massage therapists per se. They have much more complete skill sets. Osteopathic practitioners, because we're novel and people don't necessarily have that momentum behind us, they walk into the office, you do what I... Right, they don't know what you're going to do. Yeah, so I get to I get to direct that. Can I, can I ask you to fill something in here? Because I will forget about this. When I was a newer RMT, I encountered a couple of osteopathic practitioners and I would always ask them the same thing. I say, would say, I would love to know when it's appropriate to refer to you. Mm-hmm. Can you describe to me what you do? That apparently is a very loaded question. Again, this is where my, what I would call heterodox or non, non-standard approach to the profession comes into play. Because you get this big, fancy explanation. Is that fair? Fancy? I don't know. Wordy? Confusing? Yeah. Circular? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, you're not... <laughs> yeah. 
if that's so, fancy, yes, fancy. I mean, is the word. I w- I would just say it that way because it encompasses circular and wordy. Yeah. Right. So, woo, sparkles. <laughs> <laughs> the it is not that big of a deal. Osteopathy as a profession. So I'll give you my my quick speech. Right. Osteopathy. Osteopathic practitioner is essentially body mechanics. Everything in the body is supposed to move. Whatever's not moving, that's what I'm going to find, and that's what I'm going to work on. It may relate well to the sensation you don't like, but I'm definitely going to get it moving better. When I get it moving, or when I'm working on it, the difference between osteopathy and other professions is that osteopathy centrally avoids making you say ouch. That is derived from what's called the barrier concept. Other hands-on professions are not looking to make you say ouch, but they don't mind if they do. Right, So a massage therapist, something that you will hear in massage rooms and physio rooms and chiro rooms, just breathe through it, relax, let me have it. You won't hear that from me. No pain, no gain. No, I'm yeah, kidding. <laughs> but, but, and now what I'm saying is that there's lots of massage therapists who don't do that. Of course. But as a profession, they don't mind. As a profession, osteopathic practitioners have this thing called the barrier concept, which predicts how you will interact with pain responses. You don't do it. Right, So there's, there's a way in which that's different. So the actual application of methods is responsive to the patient with respect to kickback, so tensing up, things like that, mm. or expressions of pain. So tensing up could be an expression of pain, saying ouch could be an expression of pain, a face could be an expression of pain, running off the table could be an expression of pain. Those are all central to how you apply in osteopathy so when would you refer to me when something's not moving and you can't get it moving all right considering you are so cerebral and research is very important to you and obviously you're not going to make batshit crazy claims does it irk you like if somebody comes into your practice and they you know want you to balance their cerebral spinal fluid and all their sphincters <laughs> Listen, I'm a 41 year old man with some problems I don't need. I am not messing with your sphincters. <laughs> now, uh, the way that I deal with that is I say, "Listen, uh, you have experience with another practitioner, and those are the claims they made. Uh, I will, I will get things moving, but those are not things that I can make a meaningful claim on. And realistically, they can't either. Now, because I say that to the person who's looking for me to do that, it ends up being a really good triage mechanism. That person's probably not coming back to me. It doesn't mean that there is anything... That's not personal to me. It's just not the way that I'm going to function. You're not the practitioner they're looking for. Yeah. There's many that will say, you know, cranial sacral cures all, and I will make sure that all your fluids are moving in the right ways at the right times and... Yeah, just don't make me pee on the table. No, don't do that. I don't don't know. And if it it is cerebrospinous fluid leaking on the table, the answer is ambulance. (laughs) Yes, 100%. (laughs) Lesson of the day. If there is cerebral spinal fluid leaking on the table, please call 911. (laughs) So if it's like really clear coming out of the nose and they don't think it's boogers? Yeah. Hospital. Then you got a a problem. (laughs) But yeah, they... I won't make those claims... As a practitioner, I won't make those claims as an educator. I'm not going to be mean to somebody who makes those claims as a practitioner or as an educator. I will provide the information that I have that allows me to comfortably suggest that they're incorrect about their claims. They're not incorrect about their work, but they're incorrect about their claims. I'll happily say that. I'll happily have that conversation with them. They can say whatever they want back to me. It's not going to be a fight. No, I, I, I can see already, like you said, in the limited in the limited interactions that we have had, 
I think I understand your whole MO. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know that when you start making crazy sounds, you know, you're thinking <laughs> and it's not in paragraphs. No. Um, here's a thought I want to know. Visceral manipulation. Mm-hmm. Thoughts? Well, I already told you them. It's, it's the sphincter of Odie. Gotcha. So tap. It, tap, I tap. know a gastroenterologist. Mm-hmm. I was talking with this gastroenterologist about some stuff and just about palpation in general. And I was saying, yeah, like I know that you do a physical. I know you will palpate the abdomen, but that is not your even remotely a good standard of diagnostics. If you push on the abdomen and there's no pain, you let go, there's rebound tenderness, there's a pain when you let go, you know you need to investigate that area more. You know. So you you know that you probably need blood work and an image, right? But the palpation is not acceptable to diagnose an organ in any way. It is just a good early warning signal that more diagnostics are needed. Now, if we go in the past and you don't have electricity and you don't have those images, okay, well, it's the closest I can get without cutting right. you open. right? So there's a time in which it comes from that those claims would be more acceptable because we had no higher standard of evidence. Because we have a higher standard of evidence now, it doesn't become very difficult to just completely ignore the claims of visceral. You've heard of situs and versus, correct? Okay, yeah. How do you know if somebody doesn't have the organs flipped? You don't, unless you have an image. How do people who have situs and versus know before they die that they don't? They don't, unless they had reason to have an image. So really simply, odds are that the organs are all in the places you expect them to be. However, it is entirely possible at a normal interval for them to not be in that place. So for you to be on the outside of a patient, palpate something and claim that the organ's definitely there, it's definitely doing this, is insane. So you're cool with people using the manual techniques, might have positive patient outcomes. Do you ever use any any manual techniques similar to what they do in visceral manipulation or is that just not part of your practice at all? So let's just say working in the region of the abdomen? Sure. Yeah, I do. Okay. Right. And it would You ba- just don't claim that you're like resetting a liver or anything. No. Okay. No, no. I mean, like if a liver needed a reset, then I really hope it's also a Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> I want for people listening, um, this was a really interesting conversation. I feel like you taught me a lot. <laughs> Can we go now? Yeah, your daughter's just so done with this. Can we That's just fine. get the hell out of here? So well, I'm, this I'm will taking be- her to my mom's house and we're gonna get some food. But my sister's like an insane baker. Uh-huh. Like in the best ways. Yeah. I, I had somebody make a note of wanting something that my sister baked mm. and she's like can we get some of your sister's horror brownies <laughs> and it's mostly because like she'll take a brownie and she'll put like turtles and m&ms in it Ooh, that's oh that's delicious oh yeah it's normal so i have to be careful how often i go to my mom's because like i have no choice but to take them i'm like i don't know if i need you know, those in my life you, you could have went to your mom's treat. before you came here turtles and m&ms <laughs> absolutely and sometimes it's in a chocolate chip cookie so she'll take like a chocolate chip cookie <laughs> Put it in a pan, and that's all in there, bro. That's a tasty treat right there. Mark has the biggest sweet tooth. You don't get this physique without <laughs> Will you eat jam off a spoon? Uh, 100%. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Will you basically like rain chocolate chips into your mouth oh, by the handful? For sure. For sure. 100%. They, they just now I, now, I don't do it all the time anymore. I used to do it. I just don't have that stuff at home <laughs> because I'm like, no, no, I'm going in a really bad direction here. <laughs> now, for the third time, I need Sorry, to do this because people listening, and like I was saying, this has been a really interesting conversation for me. I feel like it's cleared up something, some questions I've had surrounding osteopathy. Mm-hmm. And um, I like the way that you have explained the way that your curriculum is going to run. And there's going to be people 
listening to this who were kind of on the fence about doing it who might not be interested. So I need details. I need the website, when the school is opening, how they can get in touch with you, all of those things. Is this only offered for people in Canada? Yes. Okay. Because they need to be in person. Gotcha. I'm I'm not quite comfortable meaningfully teaching people hands-on skills through the internet. I could yeah. do what it, but I'm not comfortable. What if someone that wants to come in for the four days a month and they're from out of out of country? Oh, they can do that if they feel like paying that much money. Yeah, okay, cool. All right. Uh, osteopathiclyceum.com, O-S-T-E-O-P-A-T-H-I-C-L-Y-C-E-U-M.com. There's a contact form on there. You can get to me that way. Cool. So if you there is information there about the program and, and, and other things, so it should answer some questions. But even if the information is there and you ask me a question where the information is already on the website, I'm not going to be mad. So please send <laughs> just send the question. Send me your question. There is a con there is a contact form on there that will get to me. Uh, I still, there's a technical detail that I have to iron out as far as how it pushes the email out. Uh, It's just, it's just a little funny, but it's because, you know, I haven't figured that out yet, (laughs) but uh, as far as information is concerned, osteopathiclyceum.com, that's how they can contact me. Uh, Otherwise, the Osteopathic Lyceum on YouTube is there. There's a lot of information. Well, there's not necessarily a lot of information there. There is a lot of information, but it's not about the school. It's just like cool technique videos. So you can actually see some of the teaching that you would yeah. experience. Okay. And also I do have the Osteopathic Lyceum podcast, which is available on Spotify and the YouTubes. Right? And the YouTubes. The YouTubes. Right. Uh, not the Twitters. <laughs> Sorry. I just have somebody that uh, a long time ago, it's like, what are you doing? Putting me on Twitters. It's like, is there, is, is there, is there, is there pretty girls on Twitters? And my buddy says, yeah, put me on the Twitters. <laughs> Now, if when I tell you off air who that was that said it, yeah, like you know who it is, and you may have never met them. Okay. Anyways, the <laughs> Osteopathic Lyceum on Instagram is also there. So, I mean, shoot, it's a modern world. If you want to shoot me a DM, go ahead. I, I mean, I think these are all going to be professional DMs. So you think? I think, and I'm. I mean, if they're otherwise, I probably no won't resp- eggplant and peach emojis. Yeah, speaking, speaking please. Of the, speaking of the twitters, <laughs> the twitters. Elon Musk versus Zuckerberg. <laughs> okay, so this is actually technically interesting. So Zuck is a le- is legitimately training in jujitsu, and he yeah. did go through a competition. Yeah, uh, and apparently he won the competition. It was probably not a large division. Mm-hmm. He is a much smaller person than Elon. Yeah, I have no idea if Elon's training. Mm. So he might be training, but just on size alone, there is an advantage to Elon. On training alone, there is advantage to Zuck. Mm. If Elon trains, then it's all Elon all day. If Elon does not train, Zuck has a good chance. Don't look at me. I have nothing to say about this. That's fine. <laughs> it's okay. I like fighting too. I don't like, I'm not necessarily out looking for fist fights, but I appreciate the technical aspects of fighting because I've done martial arts in the past. Nice. Uh, so yes, the, yes, Instagram, Osteopathic Lyceum, YouTube, Osteopathic Lyceum, uh, internet, which both of those are on, osteopathiclyceum.com is the website. Nice. Cool. Well, this this was really fun. Your daughter um, hates all of us now and wants no. to go home. No, no, no. So. no. She's, <laughs> if she's actually moving around, I'm impressed. I just can't see her. I think that couch has a uh, a butt imprint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's okay. Well, I'm like I'm moving around in here. I'm sliding a little bit. I'm like I can't. Like, I can't quite. I I believe that the person probably with the most seat time in this particular spot is Monica. Um, no, Ooh, that's hard to say. Oh, she jumps into. She that usually chair. steals oh. my desk. So she kicks you over here. Yes, correct. Okay. And then she fucking opens up all the blinds. I'm like, I like it dark in yeah, here. Yeah. Are you a cave dweller? I I I yes. love I love it. Plus, I don't want to see I when. When I'm working, 
I I don't I I don't want to know what it's like outside. Yeah, I want to show up and not know nothing about the outside mm-hmm. world and just do what I got to do. Yeah. We are and not. Then, the and then when you leave, it's a surprise. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That's cool. Yeah, um, he's actually right designed the lighting in both this office and our entire home, and I just let him do it because he's so particular about lighting mm-hmm. that, and I'm probably more indifferent. Yeah. So our home. Like we don't turn on a lot of overhead lights. It's yep, a lot of lamps. mood lighting and yep. lamps, and that's what it's like in here because he is a cave dweller. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> me too. Right on, man. Awesome. Well, thank this you. This is fun. Thanks for coming. Absolutely my pleasure, and I appreciate you having me. Thank you. You guys have been listening to two massage therapists in a microphone. Praise. <laughs>